Section 21 of Volume 1 of Symbolism by Johann Adam Moeller, translated by James Burton Robertson. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Subheading 13 of the Catholic Notion of Justification The want of a deeper acquaintance with the usages of antiquity, particularly of a vivid insight into the spirit of its language, gave the outward occasion at least to a confusion in the notion attached to justification in Christ Jesus, and served strongly to confirm the obstacle which existed in the interior of minds, and prevented the entire appreciation and comprehensive understanding of this practical and fundamental doctrine of Christianity. The ancients were wont to put the form in which the inward essence outwardly manifests and reveals itself, for the inward spirit itself, because the latter, concealed in its form, is thus brought out. Hence, when in the Old Testament the justification of a man, through and before God, is represented in the form of a human and judicial act, and consequently of a mere outward acquittal and release, it is the grossest error and a proof of entire ignorance of the ways of thinking and modes of speech among ancient nations not to connect such expressions with the idea of an inward deliverance and discharge from evil. How much in the Protestant Church the style of the ancient world was misunderstood, we may perhaps most clearly discern from a passage in Gerhard, where he says, The whole act of justification is described only by expressions borrowed from judicial usage. For example, quote-unquote, judgment, Psalm 93, quote-unquote, judge, John 5.27, quote-unquote, tribunal, Romans 14.10, quote-unquote, accused, Romans 3.19, quote-unquote, accuser, John 5.45, quote-unquote, witness, Romans 2.15, quote-unquote, handwriting, Colossians 2.14, quote-unquote, advocate, 1 John 2.1, quote-unquote, acquittal, Psalm 32, 1, etc. Even the multitude of these and similar expressions should have inspired a certain caution and have encouraged the idea that they must have, in part at least, a figurative signification. Rarely, even in the Catholic Church, was the right view unfolded with perfect scientific exactness and brought back by means of an accurate philology to its first principles. But though the true sense of the ancients might not be explained with the clear scientific evidence, yet it was adhered to in life. The Church, being connected by her origin with the close of the ancient world, the knowledge of the old modes of speech passed to her by a living and immediate contact. Although this knowledge did not rise through the medium of reflection to abstract science. If St. Augustine says with reason, that the Old is but the New Testament still veiled, and the New, the Old Testament unveiled, the true sense of the latter must evidently be better known to the Church than to the synagogue itself. The former imparted to the sense of the Old Testament, in the matter before us, a more appropriate form, and this is the case with all the religious ideas which the Church and the synagogue have in common, in order that an unshackled spirit may show itself purer, and more transparent, and that the form may correspond to the matter, it is worthy of remark that the Protestants conceive justification 
to be a thing chiefly external, and the church to be a thing chiefly internal, so that, in either respect, they are unable to bring about a permeation of the inward and the outward. The one, however, determines the other. For, as they consider not justification to be internal, the church, according to their system, could not become external. When justification is not the inmost property of man, it is then too weak to possess the power to produce a complete effect and to throw out the invisible into the visible and consequently to make the inward church simultaneously and indubitably an outward one. Hence that painful oscillation between the invisible and the visible church, because justification was not conceived to be an internal thing. The Council of Trent describes justification to be an exaltation from the state of sinfulness to that of grace, and an adoption of the children of God. That is to say, an annihilation of the union of the will with the sinful Adam, a removal of original sin and every other sin committed before justification, and the contradiction of the fellowship with Christ, the holy and the just one, a state which is, in a negative sense, that of remission of sin, and in a positive sense, that of sanctification. The Council further represented justification as a renewal of the inward man, by means whereof we become really just, in herons, in the believer, and as a restoration of the primeval state of humanity. On this account, the same synod observes that, by the act of justification, faith, hope, and charity are infused into the heart of man, and that it is only in this way that he is truly united with Christ, and becometh a living member of his body. In other words, justification is considered to be sanctification and forgiveness of sins, as the latter is involved in the former, and the former in the latter. That is considered an infusion of the love of God into our hearts through the Holy Spirit, and the interior state of the justified man is regarded as a holy feeling, as a sanctified inclination of the will, as habitual pleasure and joy in the divine law, as a decided and active disposition to fulfill the same in all the occurrences of life. In short, as a way of feeling, which is in itself acceptable and well-pleasing to God. When God declares man to be just and well-pleasing to him, he really is so. The scriptural word grace has several significations, but not rarely corresponding to it is the German expression, quote, Nedica, Wolwinda, Hutzvolk, a gracious, benevolent, condescending feeling towards anyone. This signification is the basis of all the others. Nay, it is, if we will, the only one. But if the question be as to the application of divine grace towards men, especially sinners, then this feeling is by no means a mere quiescent one but the condescending will become at once an act, is life, and engenders life, so that the grace of God, extended spiritually to the dead, calleth them back to life. The grace of God is sanctifying. As little can it be disputed that the words, quote-unquote, justify, quote-unquote, ref vertigen, quote-unquote, 
vidyaun, quote-unquote, justificare, signify also to acquit. This signification is used when we speak of just or innocent men who have been acquitted by their judges of the charges brought against them, who, after inquiry instituted, have been pronounced to be what they are, guiltless. This sense, in the matter under consideration, is inadmissible because the question is not about just and innocent men who have been wickedly brought before the judicial tribunal, but about men really and truly guilty and unrighteous. Here we see the real signification of the Greek word above adduced and of the corresponding Hebrew and Latin words, namely, quote-unquote, to make just, the absolving and acquitting word, the word which forgives sin, is a power truly emancipating, dissolving the bonds of evil and extirpating sin, so that, in the room of darkness, light is admitted. Death gives way before light, and despair yields to hope. Hence the forgiveness of sins for Christ's sake is undoubtedly a remission of the guilt and the punishment which he hath taken and borne upon himself, but it is likewise the transfusion of his spirit to us so that we enter into a full, vital communion with the second Adam, in like manner as we had with the first. There can be no doubt that the transition from the life of the flesh to the life of the spirit, as above described, cannot ordinarily be sudden, that, on the contrary, the substitution of the latter for the former must be represented as the final term of many preliminary stages in the history of the internal man. The act of justification, indeed, fills up only one portion of time, for the communication of a vital principle cannot be considered other than as consummated in a single moment. However, the development of the same may be subjected to a succession of periods. Susceptibility for the act of divine justification is dependent on a series of preliminary mutually qualifying emotions in the interior of man from the period wherein our faculties of discernment have clung with undoubting firmness to revealed truths the struggling soul moves on through fear and hope through grief and intuitive love through struggle and victory up to that happy moment where all its better energies hitherto dissipated unite under the impulse of a higher power for obtaining a decisive conquest, where, by the full infusion of the Holy Spirit, the union with Christ is consummated, and we belong wholly to Him, and He again joyfully recognizes Himself in us. In other words, in order that man may be completely adopted by God in the place of a child, or be justified, He requires on the part of man a gradually preparatory susceptibility Hence we may clearly see how singular is the objection urged by the Protestants, that the acts preparatory to the great act of justification indicate a Pelagian tendency in the whole Catholic system. Because, according to our doctrine, so much must be endured and wrought, so much must be consummated in the Spirit, ere the one great divine act can ensue. They think we must needs believe that by the preliminary spiritual action and suffering, the fullness of God's grace is merited. It is, however, far otherwise. 
the history of regeneration forms one great whole most intimately united in all its parts so that the third and fourth grade cannot be made for the first and second have been passed as divine grace can alone impart the power for the execution of the first step and it is so with all the others as accordingly all parts of the great whole are determined by higher aid and consequently are a work of divine favor it follows what holds good of the parts must hold good of the whole without human exertion indeed the first motion of our spirit cannot be made precisely because it must move itself it is so with the second and third motion in other words without human agency god can produce in man no faith no fear no germ of love no hope no repentance and therefore not the real justification determined by them but does it follow that because the catholic believes this he must also believe that god communicates on this account his further manifestations of grace because man has not refused his cooperation to the earlier ones the notion of a necessary preliminary condition to a thing is here confounded with the cause of that thing itself in order however to complete the catholic theory of justification we must according to the council of trent subjoin two observations in the first place the catholic church does not dispute that even in the justified man notwithstanding that original sin together with all actual sin has been forgiven him and has been obliterated from his soul there still subsists a perverse sensuality concupiscentia yet it is taught that this in itself is no sin and that if it occurs in holy writ under the denomination it is only because it appears as a consequence of sin and leads again to real sin when the will hearkens to its suggestions the council saith quote, god hated not in the regenerated because nothing is damnable in those who have been truly buried with christ in baptism who walk not according to the flesh but putting off the old man put on the new created after god and are become innocent immaculate pure and pleasing unto god heirs indeed of god and co-heirs with christ so that nothing hindereth their entrance into heaven that however concupiscence or the stimulus to sin remains in the baptized the holy council avows and acknowledges but as this stimulus is left for our trial it is unable to injure those who will not consent but who resist victoriously by the grace of christ for he is not crowned except he strive lawfully unquote. as the catholic church deduces original sin and with it all evil in the world in the last degree from the abuse of free will they cannot find any further traces of sin in man so soon as his spirit has been averted from the creature and hath turned to god so soon as his will hath been again healed and his inmost feelings been sanctified by the inborn evil and by that habit of sin which hath grown out of it and hath become more or less inveterate more or less confirmed a mechanical readiness to incline towards sin hath been engendered in the body and the inferior faculties of the soul the new bent of will therefore cannot immediately draw into its orbit 
the movements of the soul and the body. But since, to those regenerated in spirit, such emotions are alien, and even an abomination, since the spirit and the flesh are completely severed, one from the other, since they are involved in a decisive, and, for the former, a victorious struggle, so, most certainly a carnal emotion, in conflict with the will, yet mastered by it, cannot contaminate it, and therefore cannot convict it of sin. If the will give not in to the desires of the flesh, or the desires of the flesh reach not the will, if, accordingly, there be no consent, then there be no sin. Thus, evil, and, in the strict sense of the word, the sinfulness and concupiscence, is removed, as it is driven back from the inward to the outward man, and whom it survives as a consequence and the chastisement of sin, and withal as a temptation which may conduce either to the more exalted glorification of the soul or to its relapse into the deepest fall. In the former case, it summons us to struggle and to victory, and to the confirmation and expansion of virtue. In the latter, it can easily surprise the inattentive and draw him into his toils, or penetrate into his inmost soul. But that gap which, in consequence of regeneration, is established between the interior now sanctified man and the outward man is by no means a fixed, immutable separation. On the contrary, in the believer, faithfully cooperating with sanctifying grace, it is in a state of constant decrease and gradual declension. For the continued exercise of virtue and the ever more and more powerful development of the divine principle of life thereby occasioned, restore the harmony of all the parts of man in his new course, with a constant, though not always perceptible, increase, although without the extraordinary interposition of a higher power, that harmony in this life is never perfect, so that man's inferior faculties learn to move in progressive unison with the sanctified spirit and have a share in its glorification, as they had before moved in accord with the unholy spirit, and participated in its dissonance. However, the regenerated man looks anxiously for deliverance from the body, not in order to be then only freed from any sinful inclination of the will, but to be delivered from trial and the fear of trial. The second observation which we have to make is that, According to the doctrine of the Catholic Church, the just man can never hold himself quite free from the so-called venial sins, and transgresses in diverse ways, and therefore it is not without reason that he daily, in the Lord's Prayer, prays for forgiveness of sins. As the will of the regenerated, however, is not thereby alienated from God, and his holy law, which he loves, and as such transgressions proceed more from the infirmity of the new man than from any remnant of perverseness in the will. Sins of this nature occasion no interruption in the newly established relations with God. And internal justification, therefore, according to Bosset's expression, appear not untrue, though it be not perfect. But this infirmity requires us in every instance to observe constant self-watchfulness and to practice uninterrupted prayer for obtaining divine grace and increase of sanctification. End of section 21.